everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be talking with Zara of the Toucan Rescue Ranch. Their mission is to rescue, rehabilitate, and release Costa Rican wildlife. They work with a model that focuses on conservation, education, and research to ensure a brighter tomorrow for native wildlife. If you've been enjoying our podcast, we'd love for you to drop us a review. Remember, every review helps push our episodes out to different communities so they can listen in about these wonderful rescues. Let's go ahead and get started. Hi, Zara. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Super great. So wonderful. Sid, how about you? (laughs) I'm doing good over here as well. Great. I mean, we're so excited to get into this. This is such a unique rescue that you have. And I'm so excited because, I mean, we all love dogs and cats and of course, farm animals, but getting into more of like wildlife and things like that. I mean, who hasn't gotten sucked into planet Earth at one point or another? So, but we always like to kind of like roll back the clock a little bit. So as a kid, were you just super into animals or did you have a pet tiger or? (laughs) (laughs) Well, definitely not pulling a tiger king on anybody. But yeah, I, I grew up in the northern panhandle of Idaho. And I had the great fortune of being around wildlife in my back and front yard. And so it was something that I now look back at and I'm like, wow, I was so spoiled. I mean, I, I lived in the middle of nowhere. So I, my town is called Clark Fork and that town is only 530 people. And I lived eight miles outside of that town. So, um, I was really in the middle of nowhere and I was, you know, around wildlife all the time. We had moose in my front yard, herds of elk, uh, even the occasional black bear. And I always really loved birds. I really had a great fortune of, of growing up with that amazing fauna just right there. But my mom, she's honestly the person who really got me into animals. She just always had something, cats, dogs, ducks. My dad had horses for a while. But she definitely just showed me that a home is not a home without an animal, like without a dog or a cat. And so I kind of grew up always with some sort of pet, some sort of cat, some sort of dog. And it wasn't really until I was in the fourth grade that I started exploring and understanding wildlife and different types of wildlife. And that kind of led me into falling in love with with the toucan, which brought me to Costa Rica later in life. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So amazing. What a tiny, like, that's so amazing to be like, I can't even think of how small a town that must be like, because we're in LA right now. And so it's like, you can't go anywhere without seeing someone. Right. And I was thinking like the, just like the imagery of that, like of you growing up and like looking out your window and seeing elk or seeing a moose or things like that. That has to be so amazing. Cause I'm like, I'm looking out my front door and I see a street and cars. <laughs> so it's so much different. I reflect back at it and I was, I just thought that was normal, but it so was not. It was not what, I mean, people get excited when they have a pigeon fly across their apartment window, which it, you should equally get stoked on a pigeon. But I, I definitely was, 
yeah, I look back at it and I, I really like, I'm very, very thankful for growing up there. I mean, it can be somebody's worst nightmare. If you don't like the outdoors and you don't like to like it and you kind of thrive off of city life. I mean, there's people that send their kids to learn to be a better kid where I grew up. There's like correctional schools and stuff like that. So it's really quite funny because it could be someone's worst nightmare, but it was definitely a huge thing that shaped me and made me into the person that, that I am today. So yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. So wonderful. Well, yeah, that's so funny. Someone's worst nightmare. And it's like your like dream childhood. It's like my haven. <laughs> yeah. It's funny though, because those people, they end up coming and then they end up leaving, having a big appreciation for, for the outdoors and for, and for animals too. So it, I think it just is needed exposure to those kind of things and understanding. And that really does open up a lot of doors and create a lot of better conversations for, for people who may not understand that as well, that kind of lifestyle. So, yeah, well, so, so tell us a little bit about the toucan then, like what lured you in? So I was in fourth grade and how old are you when you're in fourth grade, like nine and nine or 10 or something like that. And I had this awesome fourth grade teacher. His name was Bird Neatman, which is so funny because I love birds. And for his first name to be Bird, I don't know. I just look back. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. But anyways, he was this really tall, linky teacher. He used to play professional basketball in Europe back in his heyday. And he just always had such charisma and such personality. He would jump on desks and sing like the ha- the cheeseburger ham uh, hamburger song. And if you got geography questions right, he would throw you a Hershey kiss. And he was just extremely interactive and just, it was so much fun learning from him. And part of his curriculum each year was teaching his students about the tropical rainforest. And not just like Central and South America, but Africa and the Congo and all the way through the belt. And so it was part of our role to find an animal that was from the rainforest and do a book report about them. We weren't just doing book reports. He also wanted us to do something. And so we created coloring books and little clay figures and all sorts of little trinkets that we could make in the classroom. And then at our lunchtime, we would set up big tables and we would sell our trinkets for a quarter, for a nickel, for $2. And all of the money that we raised as like little kids with the things we made with our two hands, he then bought a forest or acreage in the Amazon to protect from deforestation. It was just mind blowing for me because I first was just learning about all of these incredible animals that I had never heard about and places that I had never you know, scene. And then I felt like as a little kid, I was actually making a difference. I could save the rainforest. And I mean, that's where I got the bug. Of course, the animal that I studied for my book report was the toucan. And I just, I don't know. I just went crazy. I just fell in love. And so I kept that sort of passion for the rainforest and I always wanted to say, I'm going to protect the rainforest. I'm going to save the toucan. And uh, fast forward many, many years later, and I ended up like just kind of, I was in that level of of college where I was like, I got to figure out what I'm doing. I was finishing my uh, sophomore year and I think I was in like a econ class or something like that. And I looked over at a board and it was one of those poll tabs where it's like volunteer abroad. And it just sounded so cool. 
And if this one was specifically in Africa and I looked more into it, I pulled the tab off and went home, checked it out on my laptop. And it was one of those volunteerism sort of things where you pay thousands of dollars, you're there for two weeks. And I'm like, what impact am I really making doing something like that? And so I started digging more and I was like, hmm, I wonder if there could be anything I could help with the rainforest or like the toucan. And I just started digging and Toucan Rescue Ranch popped up. And at that point in time, I thought it was just some sick joke that my friends were playing with. Like they threw up this like website and they're like, oh, Sarah's going to fall for this one because it seriously seemed unreal, like perfect marriage. And I looked into it and I know Leslie, the founder is going to listen to this. No offense. The website was archaic. I was like, oh boy, like it was so, it was so old school. It was like almost vintage cool. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so I started poking around at it. At this point, I was really kind of going the direction of business. And I always was really good at like getting people excited about things and stuff. So I was kind of going into the direction of marketing. After just looking at their website for two seconds, I was like, these guys could use some help. Something marketed minded, not something that's always about the animals, which is obviously their mission. I emailed. It took a couple of months to get a reply back, but I finally got a reply back and started a Skyping relationship with them, did a fundraiser for them while I was still in school. We raised uh, over $7,000 to build new owl enclosures. That was before I even got here and I was hooked. I, I, like, I, w- I was like, I have to go here and I have to experience this. I'm glad that I chose to stay in school and not come during like a summer break or something. Cause I would have probably not finished. I decided, okay, Sarah, get your degree. So I, I got my bachelor's degree, came down here for three months, just as a normal volunteer, helping them rebuild their website on the side. And after that three months, Leslie, she asked me to come back. I was over the moon. She was like one of my, like one of these people that I like, I was like, Oh my God, it's Leslie. You know what I mean? Like she started the Toucan Rescue Ranch. And so I was absolutely over the moon and went home. Did I, I think I got like six or seven jobs to save up the money to move down here for an entire year. And I essentially started their internship program. I was their first intern. And yeah, it, I mean, that was going on six years ago. So that's kind of how, that's the long story. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And ever since then, I've just evolved in my role. I started out as the volunteer that helped with marketing, then the volunteer that was doing all their social media, and then the marketing specialist. And then I started becoming the supervisor for some teams. So now they call me marketing manager slash education and fundraiser supervisor. And so I wear quite a few hats and now I have my own interns, which is so crazy to think about. But it's really great to be able to offer this experience to other people that had the same ambitions as as me, but were not necessarily a veterinarian or a zoologist. They were someone who wanted to make impact through media and stuff. And so, yeah, it's it's been a journey and I'm so happy to be a part of it. It's definitely been the best choice in my career. So, Oh my gosh, that's so incredible. Yeah. I mean, even going back to like you're in fourth grade and you're basically fundraising for like <laughs> wildlife. I mean, it sounds like you were just like you tailor made this role for yourself. Yeah, I, it just goes to show how how impactful and how important education is. And not just like, you know, teaching out of a textbook, but 
making it so like the student or the person who's learning is feeling like they're actually getting something from it or giving something back. I always, I, he's still around. He still comes in. He's retired now, but I thank Mr. Neatman every single time I see him that, you know, he really, he really shaped who I, who I became as a professional. And it's, I, I joke at him too. I was like, I beat you to the rainforest. (laughs) (laughs) He still needs to visit. I have a lot to thank for him as an educator, but also really my entire experience through school, through high school and through college, it was a very supportive place. And, you know, it wasn't always easy, but it was definitely a community that made sure like, if you want to do it, go do it. You know what I mean? And I think that so often as young people, we forget that the world really is out there. You just have to set goals and priorities and, and make it, make it work for you. So yeah, it was, I can definitely think a lot of the people that helped me get here, but it's been a ride. <laughs> it's been pretty wild. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and it sounds like too, I mean, it's more than like this opportunity didn't exist before you. So it's like, you were just so persistent and you're like, I know what my passion is. I'm not going to like give up. And like, eventually these people are responding to you. And then slowly, little by little, you're like proving your worth to them. Um, and now you're giving other kids the same opportunity. I mean, I'm not sure what your age range is. What What's a typical intern for you? Uh, they're just finishing maybe their last year of school or they just finished um, with their bachelor's. So they're, they're a couple of years younger, but usually right around the age of where I was when I was, you know, figuring it out and talking to Toucan Rescue Ranch and everything. So it is, it's, it's like giving back and it's also giving tools. There's nothing, there's not a better feeling than being like, I'm, I'm creating a little conservationist in you and giving you all the tools that you need to be able to pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue. So it does, it feels really, really good. And Toucan Rescue Ranch has given me that platform to do that pretty loud way. I think that we have a very, very great community behind us and supporters that really love us. And so it's, it's awesome to be able to offer that to, and that's the thing is it's not just my marketing internship came after the sloth rehabilitation intern and the animal specialist intern and the sloth technician intern and the clinic interns. I mean, it's just, we've really blown up and Toucan Rescue Ranch really prides itself on its education program. And the internship program is certainly like a big, big component of that. And so it's been really awesome. I mean, we have people come from all over the world. They're just like, I'll give an example. We have an 18 year old uh, volunteer. She, She just turned 19 while she was here. She's from Germany. And she wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do. She's going back to school and she's going to study vet vet medicine. I can tell you, I think about a dozen people who have gone back and changed their career or went back and got their master's because Toucan Rescue Ranch showed them that this is really what they want to do. And it's been, that's super inspiring. So it's really, really great to be a part of that. I mean, definitely. And I mean, you are super in love with toucans, like very specifically. But like you mentioned, like you have so many animals that you're caring for. So it's like, it has to feel so amazing to be able to help such a wide array of animals as well. I mean, in Costa Rica, I mean, certainly you have quite a few to choose from. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like I'm looking at, like, I know you're fundraising for a few different animals right now and I'm looking at this kisses and it looks a tiny little baby bear almost, but it's like a little, like, what are they called? Tyra's? Yes, they're called Tyras. They're part of the weasel family. They're a really, really, really cool animal. They're very, 
hyper, I guess you could call them. They're omnivorous. So they, they have, they're very ambitious with their diet. They'll eat fruits, veggies, but also other things. And so with kisses, it was really, uh, well, she was attacked by a dog and that's sadly a, a common, I know it's cuddly and we're, we're saving dogs too, but, but it, it is a sad fate. And I think that's why podcasts and education is so important on for, for dog owners too, is good training, good practices with leashes and things like that. Um, spaces for dogs can save wildlife too. And I think that we can be responsible pet owners. Like I'm a cat owner and I have a little catio for my cat named Carl. So I know that she's not out there killing birds and lizards and all the things because <laughs> that's what cats love to do. But anyways, I kisses. She was sadly, she was chased off and a dog got a hold of her. Luckily, nothing serious. It was just more so she was super young and she still was, she was probably chased away from her den site where her mom was. Um, so the pet owners luckily took action and, you know, separated them and did the right thing and brought kisses to us. And the reason Kisses got her name is because we have a permanent resident that's a Tara and his name is Hershey. So Hershey Aww. Kisses. So, you know, she was actually quite wild and she was young enough that we could train her. So our wildlife vet, Anna, she, she just made sure that she was getting healthy, strong. Then we quickly moved her out to the pre-release enclosure where she was kind of isolated. So she wasn't getting desensitized Aww. to people and, you know, humans and stuff because we're a big predator to them as well. She actually was, her learning curve was quick. And she actually just messaged Megan, our, our campaigner today and was like, I think we're ready to close Kisses's campaign because she's, she's back in the wild. She was released. Yeah. Super exciting stuff. I know me and Bridget were talking about that. We're super interested in learning more about wildlife rehabilitation because it's, it's so interesting because I, I imagine there are those cases that do have to stay with you and, you know, they are going to be lifelong friends at the sanctuary. But what kind of goes into, I don't know if it's called capturing and release or, or what kind of goes into that rehabilitation to, to release them back out into the wild safely? That's a really good question. And it does very much depend on the species and the nature of the rescue. We work very closely with uh, Manai. They're the Ministry of Environment. So essentially, you can think of these guys as the park rangers or the wildlife police of Costa Rica. And fortunately, we don't have to go on many of the rescue missions. They do that for us. And then they, based on the, the case or the animal or the location, they'll call upon Toucan Rescue Ranch. Luckily for us, we have two locations. We have our headquarters um, where I'm talking to you from right now, which is in the Central Valley of Costa Rica in a little town called San Josecito de Heredia. And it's and the climate's really nice. It's not like that humid tropical that you think of when you think of the rainforest. But we are right against one of the biggest national parks. So we do get a lot of cases from the valley, but also from where our release site is located, which is on the Caribbean slope. It's about, I would say, an hour our drive through the national park from headquarters. And this place is very rural. It is a lot of agriculture land. So a lot of plantations and cattle and things like that. There are certain parts of Costa Rica where the infrastructure is built with animals in mind, like power lines and things like that. However, there's a huge issue with installation of power lines. So a lot of canopy dwellers like sloths and monkeys and squirrels and anything that would essentially use a vine to get through the rainforest, they'll mistaken it for a power line. And because they're not insulated, they'll get zapped. 
And this is a huge issue that Toucan Rescue Ranch and quite honestly, all the rescue centers in Costa Rica are dealing with is electrocution cases. We specialize in sloth rescue in that regard. And so we also have a really great release rate with the animals that come to us that are electrocuted, um, given that, you know, they're, they persevere and they're strong enough. And we've had a few campaigns up regarding that on Cuddly that have been really, really amazing. But essentially, a lot of those rescues come from that area in Costa Rica. They're brought to the headquarters where they receive intensive clinical care, where we do treatment plans, pain management, and we do like making sure that there's no dead tissue and so any sort of infections. Sometimes it is so severe that depending on the case of the rescue, we have to amputate or do some sort of serious surgery, stitching. We have a really great partnership with a, a band that it, it's an x-ray van and it's a clinic that comes to the Toucan Rescue Ranch and their van is converted into an x-ray machine. We just bring them out with their kennels and they, they quickly do uh, an examination. And that's pretty standard for us. We want to make sure what we can't see outside, there's nothing funky going on inside. So we do x-rays and we sort of get them stable. They go through a quarantine phase in our clinic and through their tre whole treatment plan, which, you know, it can be several months based on how bad the, the wounds are, but we have sloth rehab interns and other interns that, uh, that go out and make sure that they have rehabilitation, meaning that we're encouraging movement. We're giving them proper exercise. They're gaining back that mobility and that strength based on their injury. And so by the time that their wound is fully healed, they're also simultaneously gaining back the strength that, that was lost through, through their healing process. Mm -hmm. And we're able to, to release them back into the wild. And fortunately, that's something that is always done roughly in the location that they were found. So the acclimation, um, you know, they're able to acclimate fairly quickly. And if that's not the case, let's say an animal came to us as an orphan, as a young baby, it was hand raised and it goes through the whole program. We uh, have them go through sort of a phase at the release site where uh, they get acclimated. They're in these huge enclosures and then we soft release them, which is different from hard releasing, which means that we gradually sort of let the animal choose when it's best for them mm -hmm. after providing wild foods and making sure their behaviors are correct. And that goes for a lot of mammals. I was kind of specifically going after sloths when talking about that, but the same really does apply to cans and other parrots. We have a really awesome release program with them. However, it's much more like making sure that they can forage on their own, that they're strong flyers. Let's say if it's an owl that they are able to hunt successfully because you don't want to release an animal who can't feed itself. So we go through all of these sort of training processes and make sure that they're capable, strong, and willing. And then that's when they go back out. And I'll be completely honest, some animals choose they rather not. <laughs> so we do have uh we do have a few cases of failed graduates, we like to call them the the dropouts. Uh, they kind of want to stay at mom and dad's that's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, we do have a few cases of those, but for the most part, all the wildlife is really resilient and they're much happier back into the, in, in the wild. So that's where we want them to end up. That's incredible. That's so incredible. Cause I, I don't know if this is like such a silly like thought or like a silly question, but I feel like there's this thought that when you take an animal out of the wild and you're, you know, rehabilitating it, the longer that they're, you know, getting that human interaction 
maybe the harder it would be, I guess, to release them out in the wild. Is there like a correlation with that? Or do you, I mean, I guess, does that play a part in it? Does it make it a little harder to, you know, do that, that gradual release or that immediate release? Or I don't know if that makes sense, but that's always something that's in my head. That totally makes sense. And and I'm sure that's a question most people have, especially not working in like a reintroduction program. And it is a huge concern, 100%. I mean, the based, and this might sound silly, but really based on the animal's intelligence and also on how easily, like if they're a social animal, you have to be very careful with those types of species because if they're social, then they can desensitize or they can get attached. And if they're not afraid of humans and then we release them and then they approach a person in the, in the wild or, you know, they end up in an urban area that creates huge conflict. Either they could be captured and kept as an illegal pet. They could be hurt by a moving vehicle because they're in a place where they're looking for food where they shouldn't, for example. And so those are all very huge concerns. And you just really need to, whenever they're going through that rewilding process, we really have to ask ourselves, is this animal really exhibiting the behaviors that it would be able to be successful once in the wild? And I really like to think of parrots releasing like Amazons and, and, and things like that, because they do easily get attached to people and they do have a high intelligence. And so releasing a parrot that then might fly off and end up on someone's front porch is not ideal because that shows that they're not really, they're not afraid of people, that they're not foraging for food on their own. So if that person decides not to feed them, or if they do want to feed them, then that could be, you know, more of a chance of being kept as a pet and then they're put back in a cage. And that's, of course, not what we want. So we really need to make sure that they have those sort of behaviors before being put back out there. And, you know, with every rewilding program, there are failures to every success. You know what I mean? So we are constantly learning about that. But I think what's very important is is creating some sort of isolation, minimizing human contact, and really allowing the animal to figure it out on their own. And if they're a social animal, putting them like, for example, with, with parrots, you put them with a flock, they become bonded and they sort of then learn from each other rather than learning from some from a human. And that's super, super beneficial for them in the long run. And once you release them back into the wild, they'll likely stay together because they're bonded. So that those are all huge moving factors. And I know that our animal care staff, they have to consider those variables for each species based on their behavior and what's worked in the past and what's not worked, essentially. So, But with sloths, I'll say specifically, they, these guys, they're surprisingly easy. Like, Don't think of them as like a monkey. We don't have a monkey release program yet. I mean, that could always be some a possibility in the future. We do send the monkeys that are releasable to other centers who specialize in rewilding programs for them, but they are extremely social animals. They have very complex communities uh, within their troops and things like that. So you can't just release a monkey and be like, all right, good luck, buddy. You have to release the monkey with, with, a, with a troop because if you release without, they're, they're not going to survive. I mean, that's what exile looks like. That's really, really important to make sure that they're with a troop. If you're releasing a troop, then you have to make sure that they, you don't have too many alpha males. I mean, it's very, very, very complex. And I'm not a biologist, but I just know from learning that you can't just throw a monkey out into the wild. But with sloths, because they are solitary and they're not, they're especially not a social animal, 
they're extremely, I don't want to say the word easy, but they're much more straightforward when it comes to releasing a sloth back into the wild versus a very social, complex animal such as a monkey. So that's been really great. And we've implemented a very strategic two-year program called Saving Sloths Together for releasing sloths back into the wild so we can ensure the ones who are hand-raised by humans, they have the best tools possible once they're in the wild. And it's really awesome because the program is extremely successful. We even have babies that we raised now having babies. Like mom, like Leslie, our founder, she raises most of them and uh, she's like a grandmother now and a great grandmother and it's quite sweet. So (laughs) yeah. Oh, how precious. That's so interesting. I would have, I'm so happy that you explained that because that, that is really interesting and it, it almost, it sounds like it should be common sense. Of course, like different, like animals have different social levels and that would take it into account, but I've never would have, like that answers my question completely. I would have never thought about that. I'm glad. Yeah. And it's really, really cool because I've seen, like we've released a fox before and that's one that my colleague, Anna, was really proud about. Uh, that's one of her favorite animals uh, that we've ever had come through here. And it was her life's mission to make sure that that fox didn't become imprinted because those, they are extremely uh, like, you know, habituate, like they can be easily imprinted by people. And so she made sure that she was one of the only two people who could interact. And when she did, she would roughhouse with them and like make noises and make sure that like he was a fighter. We called him Star Fox. And he got old enough. He went through a similar program that Kisses did. And we released him back into the wild. And it's really cool because the park rangers who released him saw him like a few months later and thriving in the wild. And there's nothing, there's not a better feeling than knowing like all the work you put in for an animal, they're still doing amazing mm-hmm. back out there. So it is complex. And that was something that she's like, nope, only me. I know he's really cute. You can't, no one else around him. Like he has to be in a dark space during the day. Like, cause they're not a dark space, but you know what I mean? Like isolated. We don't want him around anybody else. And so that was a really complex release that we are really excited about. And honestly, kisses too. Kisses could have easily gone the other way. And then we would have had another permanent Tyra, which is not what we want on our hands. Hershey is enough because Hershey was an ex-pet. Sadly, someone thought that he would be a fun attraction for their hotel, which is not a wise decision. These guys, like I said, are our little terrorizers. And so after he started growing in his canine teeth, they realized, oh, maybe this wasn't a great idea. And their hotel got destroyed and they actually themselves turned him into us and for a while would even come and visit him. But I will say for full disclosure, it is illegal to keep any native wildlife as a pet in Costa Rica. So you are breaking the law. If you have a songbird, a lizard, a sloth, a toucan, I mean, any one of those things, they made it a law that you can't do that, which is also creates some sort of uh, kind of some complex conversations for rescue centers as well down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I know I heard a story too about even just as something as simple as like a parrot and how they behave once they've like imprinted or like quote unquote, like kind of chosen a mate kind of a thing. It's kind of terrifying. Like people don't realize like you can't just bring an animal into your home and expect they're going to behave like a domesticated dog or cat. Um, Like in this story I heard they were, (laughs) the woman was like, she got this parrot when she was like 18 and then she ended up getting a family and kids and like the parrot would like try to attack her kids because she was jealous. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. And they live for a really long time. I didn't realize that as well. Yeah, those are both really, really good points. And actually is a perfect wraparound. So like, so the Costa Rican law says it's illegal to keep any native wildlife as a pet. However, in Costa Rican culture, for the longest time, families would keep parrots, specifically Amazons and things, as pets. And it would be like, oh, Grandpa, Grandpa Javier, he has he has like the Loda. And it was common. I mean, most homes had them. But that then created a huge issue because if Grandpa Javier passed away, then they would inherit this bird that they didn't really know how to take care of or didn't know what Mm -hmm. to do with. And so then you have a lot of displaced, unreleasable, intelligent animals. And so here at the Toucan Rescue Ranch, I mean, we get inundated by non-releasable parrots. And it's really quite a shame because the yellow-naped Amazon, which is one of the most common ones we receive, is an endangered species. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're much more beneficial in the wild doing their thing where they should be but instead they're they're strongly illegally kept and it's a double-edged sword because it was a big part of culture for the longest time in Costa Rica and then it became illegal and I'm glad that it is because it's teaching people that wildlife belongs in the wild you shouldn't keep you know wildlife as a pet things like that it's a complicated thing but then rescue centers are completely full of non-releasable animals because they sing huevos and they cry like a baby and they don't know how to behave like a parrot. They behave like a little four-year-old. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex thing. And it's something that we see all the time here. And just like you said, they live a really long time. Nine times out of 10, they outlive their owners. I mean, these guys have life, life expectancies upwards to 80 years. And so it's, uh, yeah, it, it can create kind of a interesting dynamic for the family, for the government and for the rescue centers receiving these animals. So I mean, the same issue really does apply in the States as well. I mean, there's a lot of rescue centers for displaced pet birds, for example. That's actually how Leslie, our founder, got really involved with birds and and fell in love with them is by rehoming unwanted pet parrots and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, but it is an ongoing issue. And I think it's something we should just talk more about so we're all aware. Definitely. I mean, and that's so, so incredibly heartbreaking. I mean... And like Sid and I see like so many people like end up surrendering just their dog or cat that lives like a, like 10 years or more kind of a thing. So I can only imagine how much larger of an issue this is. But it sounds like you guys have actually taken this as, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but also as an opportunity because you have this breeding program, right? Well, the breeding program is not so much for the parrots. It was more targeted towards the toucans because Leslie, the founder, was more worried that there was no, there's a lot of programs in Costa Rica that is focusing on the great green macaw, even the scarlet macaw. There's been really successful reintroduction programs with them before they were almost extinct in the wild. But now you can see wild flocks of scarlet macaws along the Pacific coast, which is amazing. Great conservation work. And there's also programs that are starting to focus more on the yellow napes and the Amazons that I was talking about, but Leslie more so wanted to focus on toucans because when she, she, how she founded the Toucan Rescue Ranch is she was working for a macaw project and she then realized there was really no programs focusing on toucans, which was very strange to her because 
I almost felt like the national emblem was Toucans. Now it's kind of sloss now, but uh, and how that's kind of rebranded, I guess you could say. But she wasn't really doing the work. She thought she would be more hands-on at the place that she was at, but she learned a lot and she met a lot of people. And that kind of inspired her to start thinking of what could she do to help Toucans. So that's where Toucan Rescue Ranch essentially um, was born, was through the idea of helping more other birds. And I'll be honest, the Toucan Rescue Ranch has never just been toucans. I mean, Leslie has always said yes to to parrots and Amazons and to macaws and things like that. And then a few years down the road, she said yes to her first owl. So that opened up a whole can of worms. Now she's rescuing raptors, which is like a whole new thing. And then in 2007, she said yes to her first rescued sloth. And that was the real can of sloths that just blew up. And now we that's essentially what turned Toucan Rescue Ranch into a multi-species center. But way back when, she wanted to initiate a breeding program. So for the toucans that came through her door that were non-releasable, they were kept as illegal pets, for example. They, they would not do well in the wild. She wanted to at least put them together and their offspring could then be released back into the wild. So it was contributing to the conservation of the, of the wild populations by having a, a program for reintroduction of captive raised toucans. And we were successful. We've released Keels and Swainsons and we've bred Emerald Toucanets. But for now, that program has been put on hold and we're redirecting some of our focuses on the animals that are already coming through the door. But just uh, two weeks ago, we did release a hatched right at the clinic, a toucan that we, that we named Jerry. He went back into the wild. So that was pretty exciting. To see the from from egg to wild, it was so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, what a wonderful learning opportunity for all of you. That's incredible. Well, I do want to touch on too, just because we have no idea. So, how have things been going since COVID hit? This question makes me emotional. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been. Um, we actually, I'll have to send you guys the link, but we made a video a bit uh, summarizing our experience with COVID. So, something about Costa Rica is. I mean, like, I think it's somewhere around a third of the GDP, uh, like a huge part of the economy is comprised of tourism. And so when there was no tourism and Costa Rica claimed, you know, the state of emergency on the country, and I think it was March 17th or 20th or something, it was a huge hit for all of us. And unemployment, you know, was pretty bad. And our main source of income was taken overnight. Our Main source of income is offering educational walks to people who want to learn about the wildlife and their stories. And we couldn't do that anymore. We had to close to the public for good reason, obviously, for everyone's safety. But it was very scary. It was very, very scary. And, you know, Cuddly came into the picture kind of like with a cape on. You guys definitely helped in a lot of ways bring income that I would have not probably been able to find otherwise. Or Amazon or our wish list items are incredible. Like our treasure is buried with boxes and we need to find ways to get it down to Costa Rica. And that stuff was all very, very helpful. But essentially it kind of came down to, to me and my team of finding sustainable ways of finding, getting us through the dark ages essentially. And so we went virtual. We started offering our educational walks online. We did an alliance with Amazon Explore. So we're able to offer on their huge platform uh, experiences with Toucan Rescue Ranch. We did really uh, ambitious crowdfunding through 
art campaigns and we did the Giving Tuesday, of course, and all sorts of, you know, initiatives online. And we just really looked to our supporters and said, hey, we know you're struggling, but we want to keep bringing you beautiful stories of rescue and release. And we need you more than ever right now. And so I just like, I guess the one word that I take away from 2020 was determination. I wasn't going to let all the work that I put into the center and all the work that my colleagues and the people I've been working alongside the last six years, like let that fall apart. So we got through it and we're seeing the end of it. Uh, Costa Rica reopened its borders. We re we opened up our gates for the first time in almost a year last November in November. We had our first guest walk onto the floor, onto the, into the driveway. And we we're like, Oh my gosh, this feels so alien after so long. And yeah, we were, we're finally seeing the end of it. And it's, it was so exciting. We had our first school group come back since the pandemic. It was 14 kids. I think they were probably like eight, seven or eight years old. And it was just like, oh my gosh, we're bringing back kids and we're bringing back our education program, not now just virtually, but like it's all starting to come back. And it was like a breath of fresh air. I kind of want to get emotional about it just because it was, a lot. Oh, and we did the Sloth Iron Man games, which ladies, if you have not watched it, I highly recommend. It's a really fun, like multimedia campaign that I put together in, a few years ago where sloths go through like an Olympic challenge. And I, they, it's all enrichment. It's all things that they love to do. I just record them doing it. And we have the one meter dash, the hibiscus eat off, the poop off challenge, whichever sloth can poop the fastest. And uh, what's the last one? Oh, the strong sloth challenge, whichever sloth can pull themselves up onto a branch the quickest. So I was just trying to make sure that we kept up on all of those things that people has, have always loved, but honestly, probably really needed through 2020 as like kind of a, a nice news break. And so, yeah, we made it through thanks to, thanks to our amazing community and into partnerships with Cuddly. And we started a really great internship online program for our vet students um, with this really great, I don't know how you call them. They're like, a, they work with the university. Um, they're called Loop Abroad. So we were able to bring students an educational experience because our internship also was pretty much shut down. So then we went virtual for them too, um, which was all very exciting. So coming out of it, we learned a lot. We learned a lot and we're keeping everything that we learned and we're going to make it even better and brighter for the years to come. So yeah, it was a year. How was you? How was your year? <laughs> how was, how was everything for you guys? <laughs> yeah. It feels like it was like five years, right? Like it wasn't even like one year's worth of work. It's like, and I have to ask, so with this Iron Man Olymp games, do you have to do like time-lapse to like show what they're doing? Oh yes. Yes, we do. Oh my gosh. The poop off those guys, they like take about, I don't know, sometimes the 10 minutes. And so I'm just recording. So whenever, whenever you see the video, you'll see their booty shaking and they do this little sloth dance. We call it the little twerk and they like shake their butt and it just looks like them bouncing really fast because I have to hide, like I have to speed it up. Otherwise no one would finish watching the poop off because it takes too long. Yeah, I definitely have to speed things up, but surprisingly the hibiscus eat off, I don't have to speed up too much because they really do love those flowers. And this year we had a special guest. We decided to bring in a three-fingered sloth. First time ever, because it was our fifth year doing it. So we had to do something fun. Um, so 
he was eating something a different fruit but yeah you guys will have to check it out let me know what you think oh my gosh yes absolutely that sounds hilarious I love how creative you got to it just sounds like you did all these like I mean and and you said it it's like we all needed that like for sure (laughs) I'm also wondering too I mean so you've been there for such a long time Uh, we work with so many different rescues who are kind of getting off the ground or obviously have had to adapt or are continuing to adapt, I'm sure. I'm wondering if you have any like particular like favorite marketing thing that you've done or like what do you think is like a key to really making an animal welfare nonprofit like super successful? Wow, that's a really good question. I think there's two there's two things that I always remind myself and the people who learn under me is consistency and creativity. And if you can find those two things within your social media platforms, within your fundraising efforts, within your support outreach and things like that, then you will be successful. And I really do believe in transparency and honesty. I think it is important to share the sad stories just as much as it is to share the successful, happy stories, because the reality of rescue, rehab and release or in most cases uh, with cuddly listeners, you know, the rescue work is really sharing those stories, but also giving a call for action afterwards. Yes, this happened. Yes, this was terrible. But what can we do as a collective community to make this better? I feel like if you always have the educational component to it, it really does spark change. That's something that I have really found in within the Toucan Rescue Ranch community I mean, it's, it's just really, really fulfilling. And what I mean by consistency, find something that works with you and your mission and your vision, but also with how you want to share that. And for me, I always like find the certain things that I always want my followers to know about. I want them to know about what new animals we have in, what's their story, what's their name, why are they here, and what can they do to help, and what is going to happen if they help. And I find that that has been really, really, really powerful. I also really encourage people to find what they're really good at and talk very loudly about it. For us, we love talking about our medical program because we're really proud of what we do in our clinic. It's small, but mighty. And I always say that because it is really quite tiny, but the things that they do in there is just amazing. And I always look at my colleagues and I'm like, I can't tell stories if I don't believe in them. And I, I believe in you. So if you keep giving me things that I'm excited to tell others about, then we're going to have, we're going to have no problem. And so you find a team that you really, really work with and you find that sort of consistency. And with that comes creativity and you just, you find the things that work for your team that also will tell your story in the way that you want it to be told. You sound like the best coworker in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And even like mentor, like I'm sure all of your interns, I'm not sure if you have any that have started filtering back in, but like, I think that should be like a highly like sought after position at this point, because it sounds amazing. Thank you so much. I just think it's really important to give people the tools that they need to succeed. And if we all work together as as a collective community, then anything's really possible. And I've seen that in my small team, like you asked earlier with the how do we survive 2020? Certainly it was not just me. It was all of us saying, we're going to get through this. We have no choice. We're here for the animals. I think that 
for any new rescuer coming on, like, just know that your heart, your whole heart has to be into it. And I think if you have that and passion, you're unstoppable. I mean, everything else comes like naturally. And at least that's how I've experienced it. And with all the people I've, I've met along the way, that's, those are the people that I know are going to be successful. So. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. You sound so inspiring. And I mean, I love that you are looking at it like definitely fueled by your passion, but also like you've got your head involved too. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes like, oh my God, I'm too bad. Like chill out, Sarah. <laughs> I think that that's the thing, especially when we work with animals, right? I feel like people in social work, oh my gosh, my hat goes off to people in social work, but I mean, I'm, I'm an animal person. So I always think about like, what kind of head and heart do you need to be able to time and time again, see like just crappy things happen to innocent beings, um, whether it's a dog, whether it's a sloth, whether it's a toucan, I mean, you name it, it's probably happened. And you get out there and you have like, you have to have a positive, proactive attitude. You could just easily be like, flip a table and be like, well, humanity sucks. I'm going to go lock myself in the closet and cry for about two hours. You can't, you can't do that. You have to almost have thick skin with a heart that's full of, full of love, but a head that's full of determination or, you know, like ambition, I guess. And I think that's really like you, if you don't have that, then you're going to just get so burnt out and it's just not going to be, you got into it, loving it. You're going to end up hating it. And that's like, the saddest story is finding someone that, you know, I thought it was for me, but I just, it, it, it was too tough and nobody ever wants that. So really ask yourself, is this really what I want to do? Because it's not easy. It's definitely something that is, can be heartbreaking. So inspiring that you're, you're saying all that. Cause I mean, it is heartbreaking, but I love that you're saying too, like, you can't leave, you can't leave people out of it. They have to be involved in some way. Unfortunately, we all can't live in like a private island. I guess you guys are, are, are as close as you can get, though. <laughs> Not really. You guys are an island, but we do have some kind of fun questions. So the first one I have is, what's your favorite species? Anybody who knows me, they're going to be like, Ugh, that's so basic, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I love the Keelbill toucan. It's the, it's the toucan that has the rainbow beak. There's something about them. anytime. There's one that comes through. I just, I just love them as babies. I don't know, just everything about them. They're kind of little, little turds. Like I guess they're. You don't need to cut that out. I do mean it. They're they're kind of brats. <laughs> they kind of have a demeanor that's, it's playful and it's spunky, but it's also like they could like really thrash at you and kind of like come at you and stuff like that. I love that. I don't know. There's just something. Wow, they're beautiful. I'm like looking at photos of them as you're talking. They're beautiful. And yeah, they're breathtaking. I mean, you could just like, how did nature do that? Like, how is that even possible? And I just like, they blow me away. They're visually stunning. I think they're so charismatic. I just love them so much. I, I mean, I can't be biased though. I do love all different. There's so many different species of toucans. They all have their own, their own personalities and their own beauty to them. But I do have a special connection to the Keelbill toucan. So, oh my gosh, that's going to be my answer. Oh, that's great. Well, so I know you mentioned too that you have a few other organizations around you. Um, so I'm wondering if you have like another 
organization that you kind of crush on that you like love their work they do and you love working with them? Oh, that's a good one. I, that's a thing too. I like, just as like a segue, I think without working together and building like programs and partnerships and collaborations, like conservation is a dead end. You need community. Like you, you can't just decide I'm going to do this and everyone else is going to do that. You have to work together. And so one of my favorite collaborations is with the Sloth Institute and they're based on the Pacific coast. We're all really good friends with the co-founder, Sam Troll. She is a little savior for sloths, not little, huge, I, I, I will say. She's definitely an inspiration for women in conservation, especially. And so is Leslie, our founder. I mean, it's two women that started really amazing conservation projects and have been leading the way. They're the people who are the organization that we started the Saving Sloths Together program with. And they essentially gave us this huge not database, but like know-how. We like collaborated and we're like, okay, so Toucan Rescue Ranch is really good at the rescue and rehab part. We got the medical stuff down pat. But what Sam wanted to do with the Sloth Institute is create a release program, a rewilding program for all these sloths that kept coming into rescue centers, but then were, you know, essentially told they're non-releasable because you raised them as, as from hand raised. That's not true. You actually, sloths are extremely, like I said earlier, resilient. So she kind of put all of those rumors to to bed and she started a really great release program with us. And so I really love our partnership with them. I really love our collaboration with a, an education-based um, organization in Canada called Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants. And it's led by this Nat Geo Explorer, um, Joe. He is so cool and he has such great connection with people in, in National Geographic, which is obviously a great network to, to be a part of. But he connects classrooms from all over North America with places from all over the world. So you could zoom in, you know, have live interactions with like a rhino project in Africa. And then you could hop over to Costa Rica and learn about sloths with us. And then you can, I don't know, go to Australia and learn about koala bears and stuff. And so I just like really think about what I learned as a fourth grader. And I just think that those experiences are like paramount for kids really feeling like they can go and take on the world. So I really love that alliance with, um, with them. And hmm, let me think of a third, just to be, just to have it in threes. I, we do work with another project called the Macaw Recovery Network, and we've received some rescued great green macaws, which are critically endangered in Costa Rica. And essentially their mission is to help repopulate wild populations of the great green macaw, other populations like the yellow naped. And so they do a lot of really cool like research in the wilds. They'll go measure nests and climb trees and stuff like that. And I hope that we can do more work with them because I think they're doing really, really cool work with birds, which is, which is awesome. So, so yeah, I think, I think those those are, I mean, we have a couple more, but I won't bore you with them. <laughs> I mean, you just have the coolest job ever. I know. <laughs> Thanks. You guys do too. You're connecting people with amazing projects. That's awesome. And connecting with, with people like you. So, <laughs> I mean, that makes it definitely, I mean, it's Monday right now for us. And it's like, this is a great way to start my week. So super stoked. So we have one last question. I know you said a few of these as, as we were chatting, but if you had to pick one life motto, what would it be? One life motto. Oh man. You know what? 
I'm torn between two, but I'm going to go with the Lorax because that's my boy from Dr. Seuss. And it's unless you care a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. I mean, I started telling myself that when I was a little girl. And when I, there was something in my life that wasn't working out or that I wanted to change, I was like, well, the first person you have to look at is yourself. That's essentially what has kind of driven me. And I think it's such a simple, beautiful way of, of putting into, you know, a quick sentence, like it's you, it's up to you. If you want to make something better, whether it's whatever it is that you want to make better, it's up to you. So unless I guess is, is the motto. My gosh. Yes. And I hope I said that quote, right. So Nobody listening to the podcast is like, ah, oh, she missed a word, <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's right. I think, it, I think you did a good job, Zara. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Like I said, I think this is like the best way to start our week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, mine too. Honestly, I, I have had a blast. You guys are great. And I'm so open. If you guys ever want to hop on and meet Leslie, the founder or Anna, the person I talked about, who's the vet supervisor, any one of us, we're so stoked to you know, talk with you guys and we love cuddly. And so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Wow. That was such a fun conversation. We love talking with Zara about everything that she's doing with Toucan Rescue Ranch and all her amazing team members that are working alongside her to help not just toucans, but sloths and all the other wildlife in Costa Rica. Can't wait to share these videos that she mentioned with you, including the Sloth Iron Man games. So you can check that out on our blog or you can find out more information in our show notes yes thank you so much guys and thank you so much to zara for joining us today Uh, we'll see you next time guys